Congratulations for investing in your family by listening to the AI Parenting Podcast. We're a judgment-free community moving from screen time to quality time. And our motto is don't sedate, relate to create. And today we're going to focus on the sedate theme. And in particular, we are going to explore ethics and bias in artificial intelligence. Now, tech is a world of secrets. Sometimes secrets are fun like finding an Easter egg in your favorite program or game, like the flight simulator and pinball game hidden in Microsoft Excel 97. Other times it's a visual illusion, like the first Doom game that had us wondering, how did they do that? Today, we're covering a rather serious topic. So I wanted to start with a lighter tone. There will be some doom and gloom, but I promise there can be light at the end of this tunnel. The three topics that we'll cover today are the cost of bravery, biased input, and power, aka tech. So let's dive into it. The first one that I'm going to explore is the cost of bravery. There's another type of secret, dark secrets, that must not be named, which gets very little press outside of tech circles. We're ending Black History Month by revealing these Voldemort level secrets of ethics in AI. You know, I'm aware that by speaking on the topic of AI ethics, it puts me at risk of the same fate as many of my colleagues in academia and industry. The consequences range from having your internet accounts banned to having your academic reputation tarnished to being asked to go on medical leave, even though you're not sick, and ultimately to losing your job. This was the cost of bravery for Google's former ethical AI team leaders, Dr. Timnit Jebru and Dr. Margaret Mitchell. The cost was a public attack on MIT researcher Joy Ulamwini's work on facial recognition bias by Amazon. The cost was the untold jobs lost in efforts to form new tech worker unions. These brave souls knew the risk to their careers, their income, and their families. They felt this fear directly, and they still chose to speak up. They chose to speak up because they know that we are at a major turning point in the tech industry. I know that outside of the tech world, these departures may not seem like a big deal. After all, we're living more comfortably our purchases magically arrive at our doorsteps. News is more convenient and fun when we see updates from our friends. And there's an endless source of movies and entertainment available at our fingertips. What more could we ask for? What more? What could these brave souls be sharing that would possibly merit such personal and professional risk? Well, let me ask you this. 
How much would you trust a facial recognition technology if it identified you as the wrong gender just because your skin was a little darker? Would you feel comfortable having this technology used by the U.S. law enforcement? In 2018, MIT researcher Joy Ulamwini published a video on facial recognition bias. Her video was particularly critical of Amazon's AI for facial recognition, uh, recognition with a K. Amazon stated on their site that recognition was being used by U.S. law enforcement. Joy showed that Amazon had an error rate of up to 34.7% when identifying the gender of images of women with dark skin, compared to error rates of, say, 17% from competitors like IBM. But if you looked at the error rate, it was less than 1% for men and women of light-skinned colors. The video included the now iconic picture of Oprah Winfrey, labeled by Amazon's recognition as a 76.5% chance of being male. So what did Amazon do? Amazon blasted her study as making erroneous claims in a blog post. And even after a coalition of researchers, including AI pioneer and recent Turing Award winner, Joshua Benigo, they came to her defense. But the damage had already been done. You see, the post wasn't directed at other computer science researchers, but rather it was designed to sow doubt among the general public. It took over two years for Amazon to place a one-year moratorium on using recognition for law enforcement. And by the way, this moratorium is set to expire this June. So the victory was short-lived. The Amazon blog post claimed that they had a less than 1% error rate for people of different ethnicities. What? But Joy's found 34.7%. So this led Joy to say, mm, we can't just leave it to the companies alone to do these kind of checks. We can't leave it to the companies we can't leave the checking to the companies themselves. But that leads to the question, like, ooh, who has the time, the knowledge, the capacity to audit AI like this? I promise I will give more on this later. Biased input. What do I mean by biased input? This is a very important uh, concept. Terence Sheehan described three different examples of AI bias. First, 
U.S. healthcare used a healthcare cost history to determine who needed extra medical care. This had the effect of favoring white patients over black patients because they had a higher healthcare cost history, which is really just a way of saying they just spent more on healthcare. So therefore, the system would recommend that white patients take more treatment than black patients. This is this is the reality. The U.S. court system. The used a correctional offender management profile for alternative sanctions or uh, compass for short. Uh, the system was used. It used historical data to determine who would likely become a repeat offender. The model predicted that black offenders were twice as likely to commit future crimes than their white counterparts. So the algorithm was had that bias built in because that's the bias wasn't. I'll, I'll talk about this in a bit. Amazon, it had hiring algorithm. It used historical data to determine who to hire, and since more men were hired in the past, it tended to favor men. You know, all the three of these examples showed how bias can be present in the data to begin with, right? So. If you start with data that has a bias built in, like historical information, that bias, when you train an AI on it, will contain those same biases. This is a very important concept because AI it doesn't think critically about the data that it's being fed, right? That that's our job. And so, if you train the AI which contains this biased information, you will get biased results on the other end. The AI. Is not trying to be cruel,、uh, but it's trained with data that comes with embedded bias. It listens to, say, the unconscious milliseconds we spend browsing social media feeds.、Um, like we, in terms of browsing, we we browse the height of the Statue of Liberty every single day with our thumb. Our Fight or flight response causes our thumbs to scroll away from things that scare us and react in anger and outrage online. Now, the healthcare, justice, and worker examples are just the tip of the iceberg. You really start to see the power of these organizations when their AI is systematically tested for bias. Do you want to know the paper that got Timnit Jebru fired from Google? This paper is titled "On the Dangers of Stochastic or Random Guessing Parrots." Can language models be too big? And there's actually like a little emoji of a parrot on it. It's very cute. The purpose of large language models or LLMs. Is to analyze huge bodies of text in order to randomly generate new text, such as translations in a different language. So you can you can also think beyond like Google Translate, because it can also be used to generate 
blogs and social media posts uh, that seem like a, a person actually wrote it. It's actually quite good. Um, so, for example, college student Liam Poor used OpenAI's GPT-3 language generator to create a, a daily random AI-generated self-help blog uh, from a series of carefully selected titles. Uh, the AI was trained from a language model of thousands of self-help blogs. And good news, it went viral. People liked what they saw. Tens of thousands watched, liked, and commented on the daily posts. Many of the posts read like a typical self-help blog, but sometimes the structure was a bit odd and sometimes the main message didn't make any sense. Yet only three of the tens of thousands critical thinkers ever questioned if the blog was made by a real person. And guess what? Those comments, uh, this thing can't be real. They were quickly downvoted. Now, can you imagine an AI like this being used to quickly generate misinformation? I mentioned in a previous live stream that Section 230 Safe Harbor discourages companies from moderating content. So imagine your social media feed flooded with what looks like legitimate news articles powered by a bot army of AI-generated extreme news. Even incorrect translations can also cause harm when they're connected with uh, law enforcement. So for example, in 2017, Facebook mistranslated a Palestinian man's good morning post to the Hebrew, attack them, leading to his arrest. So let's go back to Jebru and her team that showed that these large language models consume, one, a lot of energy. One model uh, training for one model is the equivalent to the lifetime carbon emissions of five cars. She also showed that AI trained with large bodies of text often contain racist or sexist language in their training input. The input itself has the bias built in. Me Too and Black Lives Matter has tried to establish a new anti-sexist and anti-racist vocabulary, but AI trained to manipulate language rather than understand it will always contain the biases of everyone on the internet rather than the voice of a vocal few. A 2020 paper on Google's translation and large text query engine, BERT, showed that BERT tended to associate phrases 
referring to disabilities such as cerebral palsy or blindness with negative language. So what happened? What happened with this paper? Well, Timnit was fired from Google after rejecting a manager's request to retract or remove her name from the paper. Uh, later, uh, Google's head of research stated that the paper failed to cite research on making more efficient language models and ways to mitigate bias. Guys, this paper had 128 citations. It was described as a very solid and well-researched piece of work by University College London researchers. The, the number of references was not the limiting factor here. And this was only the start for the ethical AI team at Google. On February the 5th, another leader of Google's ethical AI team, you may have heard this if you're in the computer science circles, her name is Dr. Margaret Mitchell. She lost access to her work accounts after speaking up on the firing of Dr. Timnit Jebru. And a few days later, she, on February 19th, she learned that she had been terminated with cause at the same time that Sami Bengio, a director at Google with roughly 300 reports, was outed from his management role at Google's ethical AI. Uh, Sami had already expressed support for Timnit um, and he was a, an advocate for women at Google. He hired 39% women compared to 14% uh, on average for the rest of the research organization at Google. We've heard about some research changes uh, tying executive compensation to diversity and inclusion goals. Uh, yet the discussion around ethical AI, especially at Google, remains slowed at best. Uh, which brings me to my next point, which is very important. But before I move on, is this making sense so far? Um, a little bit more doom and gloom, a little bit more consequences. I hope it's making sense. I'm, I'm switching between all of the different platforms, just making sure that I don't miss anybody's comments because uh, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm there and I'm able to, to listen. Hi, this is Cynthia. Would you have an email? I can send an inquiry to you. Yes, 100%, Cynthia. I will, I will send you my uh, email. Okay, thank you. Just checking. I do want to make sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Power, also known as technology. As educators, parents, researchers, and industry, we need to take this moment 
very seriously. AI isn't new. So how did it move from a modest backwater to the crown jewel of engineering programs? How are tech monopolies positioning themselves for the coming AI gold rush? Now, Meredith Whitaker was one of the four organizers of the 2018 Google Walkouts and is a co-founder of the AI Now Institute. She made a bold move to completely rewrite her talk in light of the recent events with Google's ethical AI team. Uh, comment from Edna. Great insights. Thanks. I'm following. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Meredith explained that most people don't see that, and this is her quote, concentrated power is masquerading as technology innovation. Tech rebelled against retail media and how we communicate. And so now these tech monopolies put control of entire industries in the hands of fewer and fewer people. How much, how much power are we talking about here? Are tech companies as powerful as a city? Are they as powerful as a country? Write it in the comments. Yes or no. Would you say Google is as powerful as a country? Some of you saw this power being exercised on February 18th when Facebook decided to flip a switch and shut down all news for a country on their platform. Would the Australian like, would Australia's own government be able to shut down all news as easily as Facebook was able to? Now, if you don't like who's leading your government, you can vote for the opposition. But if you don't like Facebook, you don't get a say in who is the next CEO. The super voting share structure of tech companies gives some founders 20 times the voting rights of regular shareholders uh, that like shares that you can buy on the stock market and as a result mark zuckerberg owns 60 percent of all voting shares for facebook sergey brin and larry page own 51 percent of all voting shares of alphabet super voting shares have created a tech nobility that is immune to public outcry. They're not afraid. Edna, oh, I gotta gotta bring this one in. Thank you uh, for sharing, Edna. Um, Edna says, yes, Google is powerful as a nation. Great insights. Thanks, I'm following. There's another challenge. A lot of the progress in AI has been due to access to much 
much more computing power and much more input data. And so for this reason, academics have dual affiliation as both academics and industry. Like, for example, um, I work for a university or and I work for Google at the same time. So like I'm an adjunct at the university, but I am also employed by Google. Um, myself, uh, I experienced this myself and I'm thankful for having both industry and academic affiliation during my PhD in computer science because it exposed me to many real world problems and it gave me access to equipment that I would otherwise not have had available. Researchers like us have no choice but to rely on the tech giants for the infrastructure to advance the state of the art. Academics conferences themselves are expensive. So we are thankful for the sponsorship from big tech companies. But what happens when you bite the hand that feeds you as a researcher? People know who pays them. Meredith Whitaker said, it's unfair to assume that someone funded by a company cannot be critical of big tech. That's true. Many examples exist of being critical of big tech, which didn't have the consequences that I described um, today. But look at this from a broader system perspective for a moment. Okay, so rather than like one example here, one example there, I want us to understand things from a systemic perspective. And so that's why I was really interested in the Gray Hoodie Project, led by University of Toronto researcher Mohamed Abdallah. He drew parallels between big tech funding for AI and the way that tobacco companies paid for research into the health effects of smoking in the 1950s. Now this is important. History repeats itself. And if we don't understand history, we are bound to make the exact same mistakes. Mohammed's research found that of the hundreds, over hundred of the computer science faculty that he studied, over 58% of the computer science faculty he studied received funding from big tech. While Abdallah says that industry funding is not necessarily compromising, he worries that it might have some influence by discouraging them to pursue certain research projects if they know, for example, it might be ultimately reviewed by a lawyer. It's not that they're fully restricting, but if they know that there's going to be some somebody who's going to vet it and review it, like you, you would just not even pursue certain lines of research. And so as a result, like the funding goes to where towards where where research should be. It's like, oh, I'm looking for more research in this area. So you fund it like crazy. And so you get a lot more research in that area. 
And then the, the areas that are more critical, you just don't fund them. And so it becomes really hard to publish anything on it. And so that that's a way of changing the discourse in academia towards what you want. So that's the that is the 1950s smoking playbook for manipulating research. The loss of Facebook news is a strong reminder that we need to make sure that we have many sources and critical thinking for our news. For writers and media creators, I'd advise not focusing your efforts on a single platform. My philosophy has been to share your message on as many platforms as possible. The advice comes from the pain and feeling of helplessness of having my Google account banned in error years ago. Having invested heavily in Google services, I had no choice but to hope and pray that they would restore my accounts. I recommend that you use systems like Buffer, Crowdfire, Hootsuite, and others to broadcast your message to multiple platforms. Companies have full control of your online voice when you only publish to a single platform. They don't only take away your posts, but also your ability to get the word out through your social media following. So make sure that you find ways to mirror your connections across multiple platforms owned by different companies. For academics, if you're not funded by big tech, it can be hard to compete with the resources of your dual affiliation peers. My challenge to you would be to see how you can be an independent voice of accountability for the AI and algorithms that impact our society. Evaluating an AI can be done without the huge amount of resources needed to create one in the first place. Be the ethical voice in the AI dialogue. And finally, for parents and educators, teach your kids about unconscious input, like the milliseconds that impact what they watch next on YouTube or YouTube Kids, and know their interests so you can influence what they watch next and create the disruption that you want to see in the world. As our time comes to a close, I wanna leave you with a quote from poet and philosopher Amanda Gorman's presidential inauguration speech. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. One thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, the love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. For there is always light, if only we are brave enough to see it, if only we are brave enough to be it. Thank you, we love you all, and see you next week.